Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having conversations with the brightest and best minds I can find to help inspire all of us to make amazing products, amazing product teams, and amazing product companies. Now, to know me is to know my passion for helping B2B product managers survive and thrive in the world of product management, find ways to apply the best of product thinking to their company context, and not to feel too downhearted when times are tough. Well, in that vein, I've partnered up with my friend and former podcast guest Saeed Khan to offer a live cohort course, Succeeding in B2B Product Management. If you feel like spending some of your learning budget with us, you can find us on Maven or go to onenightinproduct.com slash B2B, where you can use discount code OKIP for $100 off. As ever, make sure you check the show notes for more details. On tonight's episode, we talk all about branding. And no, we're not just talking about logos, a funky name, and a cool.io domain name. We talk all about what branding is, why founders need to invest significantly more money into marketing than they think, and the importance of us all homing in on our personal or organizational zones of genius to make the biggest impact in the world. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Ollie Ziwi. Ollie's a founder, author, speaker, and brand strategist who says we all have a zone of genius, or at least she did say that before she met me. Ollie's been an accomplished artist since aged eight, including watercolor painting and even garden design, although these days she's helping entrepreneurs and business leaders pull up the weeds and tastefully landscape their company's branding and ensure that they communicate their value proposition succinctly so their ideal customers get it, want it, and will pay a premium for it. Hi, Ollie. How are you tonight? I am doing very well. Thank you. It's nice to see you, Jason. Thanks for inviting me on your show. No problem. It's good to have you here. And it's really interesting that we first met on Lunch Club, a company that I still have no idea how they make any money. But (laughs) at the same time, good that we connected there and remembered to connect here as well. So I'm looking forward to chatting about all things brand. But on that, first things first, you are the founder of Zui Brands, a consultancy where you claim to build the DNA of startup brands. So we're going to come to the specifics of those double helices in a minute. But what sort of problems are you solving for your clients these days? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, it changes, right? Because since COVID, the big issue is how do I stand out? How do I cut through all the noise? How do I explain what I do in such a way that I can attract my ideal client? Because often what people will say to me, it's usually the first thing somebody says to me is, I don't know how to succinctly sum up what I do so that it matters to my ideal client. So they want to learn more. That's really kind of, that's sort of a, a, a really good entry point into our conversation. And usually what that looks like is, can you help me come up with an elevator pitch? That's usually the first thing, right? Well, there you go. So elevator pitches, we're definitely going to come to. But you talk about solving problems for startups. Correct. And that's through your consultancy. You talk about it in your book, which we'll also touch upon in a mo. But you talk about how many early startups fail and that they invest so little in marketing. So it sounds like you're really optimized for that sort of early stage pre-product market fit or maybe just post-product market fit, that kind of relatively early stage company. Is that fair to say or do you have something in your locker too for some of the larger companies, maybe even bigger, maybe even enterprises that are looking to do a big rebrand or anything like that? Right. So, well, if you're doing a whole rebrand, you're going to hire an agency. I mean, at that level. What I can do is I can, because I'm also a, a facilitator and a facilitator specifically of light bulb moments. That's what I like to say. <laughs> if 
But what I've done, this is especially pre-COVID, I worked with a lot of organizations to help them get everybody aligned, aligned under a shared vision so they could start to understand how their particular job supports the vision. So since COVID, I'm, I find myself working more with solopreneurs and growth businesses. But really, it's also companies that are looking to launch a new product, and they don't quite understand where that fits in their whole, you know, in their, in their stable of products, for instance. So, and also, I'm a speaker, so I do, you know, I, I also speak and run workshops. Right. But in the book, one of the things that you, or one of the bits of research that you call out is some CB Insights research, which talks about the different reasons for failure of startups. And of course, one of the things that you're trying to solve with the book is trying to help companies not fail by having some good marketing muscles behind them, building that DNA or building the marketing into the DNA, like, you, like we said in the beginning. But that CB Insights research puts poor marketing as something like eighth in the list of reasons that companies fail. So it doesn't look like it's one of the biggest problems. But at the same time, it does feel that some of the higher problems, like run out of cash or got out-competed or poor product, they all seem like they could have been things that maybe could have been helped by a bit of marketing pizzazz as well, right? So do you think that poor or absent marketing is a much bigger problem than maybe is surfaced by studies like that? And it's kind of almost like the silent killer that's interweaved between some of the more obvious reasons that you might think for startup failure. Well, considering that the number one reason that startups fail is no market need, that really, that's kind of where I begin the work. Because for me, it's like, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who needs what you sell, if you don't understand what their real problem is and how you're solving it, marketing is not going to work. That's why it's not at the top. It does not mean that marketing is not important. Marketing, after all, is the engine to sales. So without marketing, you don't go anywhere, right? So, and it, <laughs> and it really begs that whole issue of why do companies cut back on marketing when they hit difficult economic times. It's really the opposite of what you should be doing because marketing is what keeps you going. And in fact, when we recover from recessions, having done the marketing helps you stay afloat and actually puts you in front of your competition who has in fact stopped their marketing. It's a very short-sighted approach to think that, mar you know, oh, we'll just cut out marketing. I think the reason that happens is because people don't actually understand the purpose of marketing. Well, that's an interesting one and something also that you call out in the book, which I promise we'll talk about in a minute. But the idea that certain types of startup founder, they kind of, they try a bit of marketing, you know, do a bit of dabbling. It doesn't work instantly. And then they give up and they, they move on and they carry on doing what they were before. So do you think that's a big part of the problem as well? It's like, unless they can see instant results, they kind of just move on to the next thing and think that maybe there's some other way to grow the business. Yes, yes. And I would say that the biggest issue is they don't understand the role of marketing, right? So most companies think of marketing like they think about widgets. I spend X, I should get Y. Marketing is not a widget. It does not live on your balance sheet. It's an investment. It's part of running your business. Just like you think about, you know, uh, updating your computer, you know, all your, your software, your, right? You do that. You don't even think about it, right? You don't expect that, oh, I buy a new system and I'm going to make X, right? And so I, my goal with my book was really to get people to start thinking about marketing differently because, first of all, it's not a fast thing. It's not something that happens overnight. 
And the biggest mistakes that company founders and companies leaders in general make is that they think of marketing like it's going to be a quick fix. It's like taking a pill. Oh, it's going to work. And really, you should be giving it at least six months before you can see a return. The other problem is they don't spend enough on marketing and they diffuse their spend. So the first thing I, in fact, you know, it's funny because one of the things I always tell founders is do not spend money on advertising. I don't know why people think, oh, I should be advertising. Advertising is only good when you already have a known entity. When people know who you are, they expect, like Nike, if Nike suddenly stopped advertising, you would wonder if they were out of business. You're not Nike, <laughs> right? They're spending, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, and by the way, you should be spending between 10 to 15 of gross. Nobody ever spends that much money on marketing, right? <laughs> but that, in order for it to work, you need to spend the right amount of money and you need to give it at least six months. Yeah, that Nike thing is definitely an interesting one and something I want to come back to in a bit because I do want to talk about your book and give you a chance. I know that you're big on elevator pitches and sales pitches and all the different types of pitches. I want to give you a chance to elevate a pitch or maybe sales pitch. We'll talk about that difference in a bit as well. I want to give you a chance to summarize the value proposition of your book. So your book's called Ready Launch Brand, which was released a couple of years ago, 2021, which feels like a lifetime ago already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, sometimes it does. <laughs> but it aims to help people get to grips with uh, with what you're referring to as lean marketing for startups and what you need to do differently in these earlier stages that we're talking about. Now, I'm sure that the ready, fire, aim vibe that you've put into that title is very much intentional. Indeed. And there's lots of implications that the title gives. But again, what is the main value proposition of the book and who should buy it? So who should buy it are... Obviously, anyone thinking about starting a business, because I think I will probably discourage them from doing that. <laughs> if you read the back of the book, which is actually one of my, my favorite things, is that, you know, the idea of what it's like to start a business, it's like you're learning. It's a startup with all its moving parts and phases and personalities. Like, it's like flying a plane while you're building it booking passengers, marketing the airline, interviewing co-pilots, and serving coffee, <laughs> right? That's what it's like to build a startup. And so my hope is that you read this and you have a process because often people just kind of jump in. They don't really do the market research. I mean, one of my favorite stories is somebody who literally spent six months doing market research. So when they launched their pediatric practice, they already had clients. Their people knew them. It was, it, it was, it's exactly what you should be doing, right? Like this whole idea of, and people don't do that. So they start, you know, they, they throw things at the wall and, and hope something sticks. I think not just uh, startup founders, but anyone who's a solopreneur, consultants, coaches, speakers, because they will learn in the book how to kind of consider, how to unpack this whole idea of how they're different and how they can position themselves, for instance, as a speaker to an event planner, you know, who's getting pitched all the time. And then the last one are companies who are looking to launch a new product, or as I said earlier, during M&A activity, you know, they're basically relaunching their company, or maybe they never really took the time to figure out who they are, and they hit the wall, which is usually three to five years. Interestingly enough, that is the, at the height of when startups fail. So because by year three, I believe it's 20% fail, by year five, it's 50%. So basically, seven out of 10 are going to fail by year five, right? But if you make it to year five, the good news is your chances of success are incrementally higher. As far as the value proposition, I think a lot of people view marketing as a nice to have, 
something like, oh, we'll get to it. And my, one of my favorite quotes from the book is, you know, we'll pay for marketing when we have money to pay for marketing, which I always <laughs> laugh at that because it's like, how are you going to have money to pay for marketing? And they think of marketing, it's almost like it's a pie, right? And so they're only going to spend a sliver of their business on marketing, which means their pie will never get bigger. So the idea is if you spend the correct amount, then your pie gets bigger and there's more money for everything, not just marketing. So it's a kind of a, I just find that really fascinating that that seems, and that, you know, I interviewed 25 founders and I have 30 years of experience doing this. And I can tell you, this is a very common misconception. And it's because, you know, people have this idea that somehow marketing is smoke and mirrors and it doesn't really work anyway. I mean, one of my, you know, one chapter talks about websites, which is one of my favorite chapters because it's this whole idea of like, yeah, we have a website, but nobody goes there. It's like, well, have you ever wondered why nobody goes there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people say, well, we have a website because we know we need one, but it doesn't really matter. Really? Because I actually think it does matter quite a bit. It's just that when people land there and they see nothing, they leave and they don't come back. And more importantly, they don't tell anybody about it. Well, it's that old argument, like if you go to someone's website and you can't tell what they do, then that's not a very good website, right? Like you shouldn't have to try and correct hunt around and try and work out like what on earth does this company do? Like they've got a weird name that doesn't mean anything to me. It's like two bits of two different Greek words stuck together because they look <laughs> exactly because they look cool or whatever. And it's like I get it. Yeah, and certainly in this day and age, I mean, I've worked in branding or rebranding initiatives before, and I mean, to some extent, I'm I'm all here for the kind of throw everything up in the air and just you know just see if we can kind of get some divergent ideas out of it. But at the same time, you kind of want what comes out of it at the end to be something that actually works right, rather than just be this hodgepodge mash of of nothing. So I do think yeah, that website thing is really interesting, and I can certainly think of a few. A few that would fail the test. Oh, I can think of quite a few who would fail the test. <laughs> I would say that from, you know, the first thing I, I usually say to people is think of your, uh, first of all, think of your homepage as the entry point to your brand. It's like your front door. People, you want people to come in, but you do not want to overwhelm them with everything you've ever done or thought of on your homepage. The homepage is really meant to be a way to walk into something that will answer two questions. Why am I here? And why should I care? That's it. And what people tend to do, and they do this on on LinkedIn as well, they feel like they have to constantly tell you everything. I don't want to know everything. I just want to know enough so that I can say, oh, this is interesting. This is something that I might be able to use. Tell me more. That's the only thing it needs to do. So a lot of my work is removing, (laughs) removing stuff that really gets in the way. And remember, we have, uh, you know, our, and this is in America, so I don't know what it's like in the UK, but the average American attention span, adult attention span now is, is, I believe it's eight seconds, but it might be less. And in 2000, it was 12 seconds. So we are losing attention span at a rapid rate. And we, we might be more at six seconds. Certainly on LinkedIn, I think you have four seconds. But you say in the intro to the book that unless marketing is integrated into the DNA of your startup culture, there'll never be money to spend on it. That's right. Now, I can think of a few other things that that also applies to, for example, the product in general or the tech team that you put behind it. Like Everyone's got their sad story to tell, right? But (laughs) if we take your statement at face value, how many of the startups that you talk to actually have marketing integrated into their DNA? 
And for that matter, I guess, what does that integration even look like if they do? Okay, so a great example is Method, Method Cleaning Products. So that's because the co-founder was a marketing guy, ad guy, brilliant, brilliant guy. And he knew exactly how, I mean, he, first of all, they're a great example of this idea of a branded house, which is what all startups should be looking to do. Come up with one thing, one place, one, you know, and this is hard for people because they feel like, oh, well, what I do is going to help the world. Okay, great. Do you have $100,000 a year to spend on marketing? Because unless you do, you're just spreading yourself so thin. So, you know, just as an example, for me, when I realized that what I really love doing is working with startups, everything changed. You know, it wasn't like I wasn't doing things for other types of companies, or by the way, nor can I not do them now. But being known for one thing helps people find you in this crazy over-message world that we live in. And it helps me understand something something core about what you do and how you can help me. And even if I can't use your services, then I, I know somebody who might, right? So, so this whole idea of clarity, which is really where I've landed, you know, this making fuzzy clear, being clear is incredibly difficult to do. I have a hard time doing it for myself. I mean, it's taken me <laughs> decades to be able to say something like, well, this is what I do. I make fuzzy clear, you know, even though I actually had a printing rep tell me this 20 years ago and I didn't listen. <laughs> he said, I know what you do. You make fuzzy clear. I'm like, duh, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just to pin you down, what percentage of the startups you talk oh, to right. Sorry. do you think have that in their DNA. Like I know you said that there are some that maybe get started by maybe marketing people that kind of have that in their DNA even, but like that's not, I'm going to venture to say most companies. No. And in fact, it's almost, it's very rare. And um, one of the examples in my book was a company that never took the time to do the market research. They didn't, I mean, they, they did spend money on marketing. The problem, okay, and this is the flip side of this. The problem is they were spending it in the wrong place for the wrong market in the wrong way because they hadn't. So it's not just to do the marketing, integrate marketing. You've also got to make sure you understand what you're trying to market and to whom, because if you don't get clear on that, you know, everybody looks like a potential client. And this one company, by the way, they were successful but they never hit the kind of success that they thought that they should have and could have hit because they were targeting the wrong market. A story as old as time itself. But let's go back to that ready, fire, aim motif or ready, launch brand and talk a bit about the brand side of things, which is obviously very much your speciality as well. And you're strongly suggesting and implying by the title that people think about that way too late. Way too late, yes. Way, way too late. And I want to go back to basics though and consider even the very definition of a brand, because some people might just sit there and think, well, you know, brand's just a cool name, a logo, <laughs> and a .com that we can hang off the back of it. But again, assuming that I'm an idiot that's never thought about brands at all ever, have no idea what they are, I'm going to get like an Audi GPT going now and get you to define <laughs> the key constituent parts of a brand and what you would consider as your remit under the branding banner when working with a client. You know, I love that because that's pretty much whenever you say the word brand, what people immediately think of is logo. And you know why? It's because logo is shorthand for the brand. 
It's the thing that you remember because it's the thing you see first, right? The name and the, and the logo. But really, the true definition of brand is that it is the sum of all experiences at all points of contact on all channels over time. And over time is the critical piece because we, you know, brands don't live in the minds of the company. They live or the founders, they live in the minds of their customers. And over time, if you do it right, we understand what it means. So when I say Nike or when you see the swoosh or when you see the Apple logo, you immediately have a whole experience that pops up in your head because over time, in Apple's case, you know, since the 1980s, you've over and over again, you've had a similar experience and the they've done, a, they're actually one, I think, a brilliant at marketing. They're one of the really brilliant marketers because they understand like they understood, you know, their their whole their whole premise is, you know, we're cool, right? We are expensive and we also want to help create the creative industry. And so when they came out with the iPhone, by the way, that was not the first smartphone ever created, but it is now the number one smartphone in the world. They did that because they made it easy. They made it fun. They created the app store. Nobody had an app store before Apple, right? So, so it's this idea of building the upon experiences, but ultimately their goal is to remind you to think different, which was their original tagline, which still really fits today. And that's true of all great brands. They, they, they really understand, first of all, that they have to repeat it. And by the way, it takes at least seven times being exposed to something before we even see it, forget, forget doing something about it, but just even seeing it, right? So repetition and people are, I don't know why, but I get the sense that people feel like, oh, I'm saying it too. No, nobody remembers it. Remember, our attention span is like eight seconds, you know, <laughs> two days later, I forgot all about this, right? So, so the repetition is really important, but you have to do it in a consistent manner, which goes back to your point about trying something out and then pulling it because you don't think it worked. Well, you don't know it didn't work because you didn't give it a chance to really go out there and, you know, see what, what kind of response. I mean, you can always shift things later on, but being consistent and having that, that message being consistent across your media platform. So when I go on your website and I go on your LinkedIn profile, for instance, I see the family resemblance. You know, they're not, they're not necessarily brother and sister, but they could be, you know, second cousins on your mother's side or something, you know, but they look like they are in the same family. That's something people don't really understand that there's also the visual cues that when I see certain images that I see on your website and I see it on LinkedIn, for instance, it reminds me, it reminds me, oh yeah, I've seen this before. Or if there's a tagline, it reminds me, oh yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, that's really interesting, the point about repetition as well. And I've obviously seen the thing about the seven touch points as well, which I think you say is even not valid for startups as well. Like it's probably even more because they've never oh, heard of more. them before, right? So it's, yeah. yeah, you kind of got to stand out from the crowd. But it also reminds me of some discussions I've had and something I've been thinking about myself around this idea of like, for example, LinkedIn content that you know, we're all relentlessly churning out these days to try and make ourselves look exciting and clever. And ideally, I guess, also get a little bit of business out of it. But I'm not actually sure how much direct business it really generates because people aren't reading some post in four seconds, like you said earlier, and then immediately hitting the buy button necessarily. And yeah, it's got to be pretty amazing. They've got to sit it a bunch of times. But at the same time, just having that under, almost like that undergrowth of just you're always there. People seeing your name 
They're seeing, like you say, your imagery. They're seeing your your style. They're seeing your attitude and the approach that you take to things. And it then reminds me, and, and maybe as a brand expert, you'll tell me this is wrong, but the kind of the quote I always use when people ask me about content stuff is like, look, no one buys a Coke just because they saw an advert for Coke just then. Well, very rarely anyway, unless you're like right next to the Coke machine. But you'll always remember Coke because A, you've kind of heard about it anyway, and it's, it's bringing it back to the top. So do you think that's the biggest reason for kind of just this consistent messaging is that it just bubbles it to the top of your consciousness at all times so that it becomes then the default choice as soon as you see it? So you're asking several questions here, which are, are really yeah, good. I'll do that. That's, that's on brand for me, I know. <laughs> But I want to unpack them because they're good questions. First of all, Coke is a consumer product. I'm in the B2B space, right? So business to business. So it's a little different in the B2B space. And by the way, Coke has been found that when they've done blind tests, people don't choose Coke. But when all they see is the name, the logo, the red, you know, all they choose it because it's familiar. They've heard it. They And, and that's all very intentional. And showing all these commercials. But interestingly enough, the product does not actually hold up if you were to do a blind test. Now, in the B2B space, it's a little different because we're not selling a soda. You know, we're so selling something, in my view, that's typically going to help transform your business in some way or transform the way you think about things, or it's going to give you a different way to, to kind of consider how you, how you market your business or even clarify why you're doing it, right? We, we can talk a little bit about this idea of zone of genius. But the fact is that in order to buy a service, we never buy a service the first time we hear ever. It's first of all, you have to build trust and you have to build like. The reason to, that I spend so much time on LinkedIn, well, first of all, because that's my platform, because that's where eight out of 10 B2B uh, leads come from from LinkedIn. I mean, people literally go to LinkedIn before they go to your website or anywhere else. So it's really important if you're uh, be in the B2B space to have an all-star profile. And that means, you know, having creator mode on, showing that you've, you know, you've, you've spoken, you've, you've been published, you know, all these things for me, like in the thought leadership space, which is where I've really kind of put myself in, you look on my profile and you see articles after articles, you see my, you know, clips, audio clips. And, and it's not about, you know, it's not as, as clear as, you know, you hear one of my podcast interviews and you say, oh, I need to hire her to come speak to my, but I have literally had people say to me, I listened to all of, you know, several of your podcast interviews. I really like the way you think, and I'd like to invite you to do X, Y, Z. So it's the long game, you know, it's really the marathon, not the sprint. Yeah, I'm obviously just putting the wrong kind of content out then and not getting the leads. But you know, maybe I'll optimize that after this call. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's talk, we should talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get the feeling there's gonna be a big bill at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But what I was gonna say is, the other thing too, is that's why you need to, to identify your, your lane, you need to figure out what, cause I don't talk about every topic. I mean, I could, I could talk about a lot of topics, but I have chosen my lane, which is anything that's brand related, startup related, related, entrepreneurship related. That's all about clarifying your message. I talk about elevator pitches. I talk about, you know, identifying, you know, what, what's keeping your clients up at night. I stick to my lane because it's much easier when, when you find me 
you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. You know what, what my expertise is in. If I try to talk about PR, I'm not a PR person. Have I worked with PR firms? Yes, but that does not make me an expert. But this is really interesting and kind of leads on maybe to that zone of genius discussion that we were going to have as well, like this idea that pretty much exactly what you've just said, I'm not going to repeat it, but this idea that there's something that you're uniquely good at and that's what you should stick to. But it feels like there's a lot of companies out there that don't do, don't do that. They, they, like, again, I think you even touched on it earlier, this idea that, well, you know, we can solve problems for everyone. So let's, let's just do that. And actually, even me, when I started going into the consulting game, I'm like, well, you know, there's a bunch of different things I can do. I don't want to kind of turn down different types of work, or I don't want to kind of explicitly position myself as like a startup guy, because, you know, then maybe a bigger company wouldn't come to me or a bigger company guy, because the little companies wouldn't come to me. But what you're saying I think, and you know, you're not the only person to say it, obviously, but what you're saying specifically here about this zone of genius is identify what makes you special and then go and do that and kind of wrap everything around that. Is that a fair kind of summary of what the zone of genius means? It is. I mean, but you know, sometimes, and, and actually this is part of what I love about my consulting practice is that I help people figure, actually identify their zone of genius. A lot of times people do not even uh, recognize that it's their zone of genius. You know, I, I find that, I um, mean, for instance, there, you know, there are so many people who do leadership development, right? But I had a client who had literally retired a few years back uh, as whatever the second level down from like the top brass in the army, like huge deal, been in the army for like 30 years or something, 25 years. She never talked about it on her LinkedIn profile. It was like, why wouldn't you do that? And once we realize, I mean, again, through this process, what she realizes is that that time in the army is why she became a leadership coach and how she's using that experience differently than somebody who had not been in the army, right? I mean, people who are civilians don't have that experience. And instead of talking about your service, which is all well and good, and yes, we do thank you for your service, but it's what, what I find is so fascinating is how to help people kind of unpack and rethink their experience in terms of their zone of genius. Why do you do this kind of work? Why were you drawn to this kind of work? Well, you just spent 25 years leading teams and leading, you know, generals basically through various exercises and helping them, right? So, I mean, that's a big deal. And most of us at least know what a general is. And we know that that's a big deal. That's a high, high level in the army. And it took really going through this process for her to realize, oh, yeah, that, that is my zone of genius. So you've identified your zone of genius. But does that mean then that there's a systematic process that you can take, for example, a startup founder through who, where you can say, okay, startup founder, you've got all this fairly, you know, maybe you've got a disconnected or lack of ideal customer profile. You've been kind of scattergunning. You've been driving through sales and kind of sending your hunters out to just try and you know, get any deals that they can to try and just grow the business as best you can because you don't believe in marketing yet. You just send your hunters out to, to do all of that stuff to whoever they can get a meeting with. Right. Is there like a systematic plan that you have when you go and speak to one of these founders to say, okay, right, back to basics. Your company's zone of genius is this, and this is what that means. And I guess if there is a, a system, could you give us like a little preview? <laughs> Yes, of course. Happy to. So 
The, the first step, you know, I always basically, this is what it comes down to. Who are you and who are they? That's it. Who are you and who are they? I have a whole process exercises that, you know, I ask, uh, and it's like three questions basically to get you started on the who am I? And then from there, we develop your core value. And by the way, you only have one core value. I'm sorry, but you do not have a wall filled with 20 core values. That's just how you do business. <laughs> The core value, as I understand it, is the one thing you would do even if it was illegal to do it. So that's your core value. And once you understand that, here's what happens. And it helps you identify that, for instance, you know, going back to what I was saying about method cleaning products, they're never going to sell diapers. That's not what they do. They sell things to clean your home, your car, your boat, whatever, but it's all around because their core value is around developing sustainable, biodegradable, beautiful products that smell great and actually help you clean whatever it is you're trying to clean, right? That's kind of their their place. And I know that's a product, not a service. So I'm using a different one here. But what I find really interesting is and then people start to get like, oh, well, we should sell. Somebody says, well, why don't you sell this, right? Because you already do. And if you don't have your core value in place, if you haven't identified who you are, and who it really matters to, then it becomes really difficult to say no. And I feel like saying no is a really important thing to be able to say, because you don't want to just grow your company willy-nilly, because eventually you're going to hit the wall. You want to grow it in the way that's sustainable so that you can expand without, you know, without losing everything else, right? And, and what I often find is that at that five-year point, Usually one or two things happen. Either they've already done this and they really know who they are and they're growing uh, exponentially, or they get to a place where nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows what they stand for. They sell out the hunters, as you mentioned, the people to go out there and make the sales. And they spend way too much time just explaining what the company does. So it limits their cross-sell capabilities. Yeah, that's, I obviously agree with all of that. And that, that happens and I've, you know, I've seen it before as well. I guess the interesting question though is like obviously if you get in early as you might do with a with an early startup for example then you can maybe you know to some extent shape the thinking and make sure that they don't go too far off track now some people might be listening to this thinking well I didn't get in early and some of these things have already happened so do you have any hints or tips not necessarily that you'd want to go and fix them yourself necessarily based on kind of your zone of genius but at the same time something that these teams could do to try to sensitively and considerately start to move the needle so that they can kind of get that focus and start to do some of the things that maybe they should have been doing all along, but, but never got the chance to do because they weren't there yet. So first of all, I'm going to say something here, which is that I meet you where you are. There's no, you know, of course, the best time is in the beginning, but in the beginning, you're just trying to keep the lights on. So I don't go in and say, well, you should have done this five years ago. <laughs> I Usually they come to me and I do work with companies that are not startups, but I typically work with the founders. I've worked with teams. I've worked with in pre-funding, you know, pre-launch to help them actually get their messaging so they can get their best clients. You know, so there's, that's one extreme. And the other extreme is we've built up to a point, but we're losing people. We're having trouble with retention. We're not able to attract our best clients or our best team members. And that's because they haven't done this, right? And this, this identifying 
you know, their zone of genius or clarifying who they really are and why it matters and who it matters to, that can be done at any time. And so one of the things that, that I've done and I'm, I'm still doing actually is, you know, these group workshops where I come in for half a day or a day. And basically by the end of it, you have your talking points. We've all, because you have to agree what your value prop is. And sometimes that gets lost over the years. I can give you examples, but I, I want to make, I want to be respectful of our time here. But. <laughs> You know, what happens is, here's what happens when you do this. At whatever point you do it, you energize the whole organization because all of a sudden I'm in, right? Like I get it. I get what this is. When I see a wall full of value propositions like, like customer service, what does that even mean? If you had poor customer service, you would be out of business. You know who can say that customer service is their number one, number one core value is Nordstrom's. In the U.S., right? I don't know. Do they? I don't know. I'm sure there's a, uh, someone like that. I don't know who the 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 main. I need person. to look them up now. Yeah, look them up. Well, one of their stories is that somebody came in and was at a, a, a Nordstrom's in the Midwest somewhere that used to ha- that had one at one time been an auto store, and the person came in rolling a tire into the store and asking for their money back. Now they were no longer an auto store. But here's what they did, because every person who who waits on somebody is able to make that decision up to a certain amount of money. And they just refunded them. No questions that the person didn't have a receipt. You know, they're literally rolling (laughs) down the aisle, you know, that I can imagine them rolling down between the cosmetic aisles with a, right, that's customer (laughs) service. But what I find really interesting, so this whole process that I have to help you identify the core value, once you see that, you can't unsee it. And people go, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I'll give you one other example, an example of a client that I worked with. So they're an architectural firm and they were expanding a very large firm. And they uh, come to a place where they couldn't understand why they were building schools and churches because they didn't make any money on schools or churches. When we went through this process, what came out of that is that they build buildings where life happens. This is starting to sound a lot like uh, the sort of Don Draper flashes of genius <laughs> that you used to get in. Uh, but it's the same thing. Like you're from, I mean, without the that's... cigarettes and without the martinis or, you know, all the other, <laughs> the other poor habits that he demonstrated in the show. Yeah. No, absolutely. And obviously all of the misogyny and racism oh, and everything yeah, yeah. that it represented as well. Yeah. But it's that kind of same energy, right? This idea of like, yeah, Don Draper would come out and and I think there was a, a a bit in the show where he's like, I don't sell advertising, I sell products. And this idea that there's like, I think there was the one about how to differentiate cigarettes and it's like, it's toasted or something like that. And it's just kind of, and all of the executives from the cigarette firm are looking at him with their jaws hanging open, like, what the heck are you talking about? But yeah, he's like, this is a different way to explain your fundamental value versus just saying that you're a cigarette company which all cigarette companies are but at the same time i don't recommend working for cigarette companies anymore yeah no well and i don't actually but but here's the thing and you kind of brought you kind of alluded to this that it's not about you when you talk to potential clients prospects what have you what they want to see is do you understand what i'm struggling with do you have a solution to fix my problem? And can you do it in a way that's going to change my life? I mean, they, ne- they, would, they never say those things, of course. 
But that's why for me, when you land on the homepage, what I want to see is something that immediately says to me, they really understand my problem. That's all I want to know on your homepage. And, and the mistake that so many companies make is they start selling when, they're, when you're on the homepage. It's almost like they're afraid they're going to lose you and they need to tell you everything right up front. Where in fact, clicking, just like engagement, you know, clicking is, you know, the modern version or the digital version of engagement, right? It's like you walk in, used to walk into a store and you'd go down the aisles. Well, now we walk into your online store and we want to know, is this something I want to learn more about? And the more you click, the more you're engaged. And at that point, somewhere in that process, you want your content information and you want to make it easy. There needs to be a call to action, which is another thing that people often forget. They're like, oh, this is all very nice. What do you want me to do with this? Right. And then you walk (laughs) away. They're not going to go look you up and find your information. They're right here. Now is the time to tell me how to reach out to you. Well, that is an amazing segue because (laughs) I'm now going to ask you how people can reach out to you and find you after this if they want help sorting out their organizational DNA, chat to you about branding, find out about the book, or maybe even get you to design them a formal garden. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that that's been a while since I've done that, but I do. I have. No, you never lose it. You never lose no, it. No, you never do. And I and I have to say, I really do enjoy that. It's just another form of design and branding, you know. So, of course, you can uh, you can go on my website, which is zewebrands.com, and you can also find me on LinkedIn, and uh, and you can find my book on Amazon. Well, there you go. I'll make sure to link it all into the show notes, and Thank you. hopefully, you get a few people heading in your direction to find out more about how they can focus their efforts and share their message effectively and properly and actually write a good one as well. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really happy we first of all connected in the first place and second of all remembered to do that chat or to do that podcast episode that we talked about when we connected. Obviously we'll stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Jason. It's really been a pleasure. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.